So the inspiration for this chapter was as a pediatrician, I routinely get pediatric journals mailed to me and I get emails from policymaking organizations. And I love to read some of the summaries of their meetings and how they go about making these policy decisions. And sometimes I'm floored by some of the decisions they make, as I pointed out in this chapter. So I'm going to go through some of these decisions with you just uh, one at a time. And then we're going to touch on the overreaching idea of this chapter about vaccinated versus unvaccinated children. One of the policies that bothers me is what I see the pediatric community do with the combined MMR varicella shot when it's combined into one. So the science is clear and these policymakers have admitted and published studies that show when you get the combined MMRV shot in one injection, you have a much higher rate of seizures. You have more than double the rate of seizures. And so for many years, policymakers would not really take a side. They would not suggest getting the separate vaccines as a safer step. They basically just left it up to pediatricians. And then a few years ago, I saw them shift that policy a little bit towards basically instead of just leaving it up to the pediatricians, they said something like, we want pediatricians to be aware that there's this risk of seizures, but we are not making a policy that says getting the vaccine separately is better than getting them in the combined shot. We're sort of staying neutral. So it's interesting that they used to say nothing. And then they made a policy saying that this is an issue, but we're staying neutral. So what I don't get is if it's clear that getting the MMR shot in one leg and the varicella shot in the other leg reduces the risk of a seizure reaction by half or more, if that's clear, and it is clear, why not make a policy that says, hey, we now prefer the separate shots. We now recommend that pediatricians give them separately. And, you know, the, the, the seven doctors in this chapter, I don't know if you can kind of gather, but they're uh, basically, their last name, their first and last names are basically, they all start with A and then B, then C, then D, then E, F, and G. It kind of goes in order. And the, um, the first three, the A, B, and C doctors are the older ones. And the D, E, F, G doctors are kind of the younger ones. The older doctors have been on this committee longer and kind of, you know, have the history and kind of mention this in the chapter. But this committee is basically kind of how I sort of view the AAP and the ACIP and maybe um, doctors at the NIH and maybe other doctors at the CDC, maybe doctors at the FDA. This is kind of how I picture them making these policies. But I think if I had to sort of suggest maybe where this fictional group exists, I almost see them being with the AAP 
because technically it's the ACIP that makes vaccine policy. And so I was kind of trying to fictionally portray these seven doctors as representing a nationwide group of pediatricians like the AAP, but again, this is a fictional group, who are going to recommend to the CDC and recommend to insurance companies and recommend to state medical organizations, basically make recommendations about vaccines. And we see the AAP making these kinds of recommendations as well. So again, what I don't get is why they won't make every decision based on what's going to be the safest for people and what's going to be the best decision for the health of children. When I see them make vaccine policy decisions, it's almost always based on, will our decision increase vaccination rates or will it hurt vaccination rates? And even if they know making a certain decision is going to be safer for people and it's going to increase vaccine safety, if it's going to hurt compliance and if it's going to reduce vaccine rates, people are deathly afraid of making that kind of policy decision. They really are. And I've seen them do that. I mean, a perfect example is the science that shows getting hepatitis B vaccine at birth raises your risk of a fever reaction and raises your risk of having your newborn baby go to the intensive care unit. So knowing that, the safer choice would be to not give a hepatitis B vaccine to newborn babies. But if we don't get that first shot into people right away and they go home and start thinking about it and they question it, everyone's worried they'll start to look more into vaccines and they'll question vaccines if there are no shots to be done until that baby's two months old. If you get the first shot out of the way before parents even question it, and then the baby seems fine, which most do, then parents tend to be more compliant. They're like, oh, we did the first one, the baby's fine. We did the second one, baby's fine. We might as well now do all the two-month shots because our baby has seemed fine. So they want to get the first shot on board almost like no matter what. So they used to recommend giving the Hep B shot just any time the baby's in the hospital after the baby's born. But a few years ago, they changed it to be more aggressive. They said, we need to get every baby who gets their Hep B shot, we need to make sure it's done within the first 24 hours. Not because that has any medical benefit, but because, again, I think it increases acceptance of the shot. If you go back to the MMR varicella combination, I can see how in the U.S. only one company makes MMR and the same company makes varicella and that same company makes them together. So I can see why that company probably doesn't care what type you get because you're going to get it from them no matter what. But internationally, there are several companies that make MMR vaccines and that make varicella vaccines and that make them combined as well. So there's competition internationally. And honestly, if word gets out internationally that the U.S. vaccine policymakers have now decided to warn the public against getting the combined shot because of the risk of seizures, 
then that's going to deal a death blow to any combined MMR varicella vaccine internationally. And it's going to shift preference to the separate vaccines. And you know they shouldn't be making decisions based on this. And the fact that they're not addressing this is very concerning to me. And it makes me feel like they do consider the well-being of the pharmaceutical companies as they make these decisions. And why is that? Partly it's because the pharmaceutical companies are allowed to have representatives sit on these kinds of committees. Not the fictional committee in my book, but in the policymaking committees like the A, like the ACIP. Okay, then the mercury thing. I mean, that's a true story. We've banned mercury in the United States. It was in the flu shots, uh, as you all know, and it's still in about half the flu shots. And they passed a law in a lot of states banning it in pregnant women and babies. But each year we run out of the single dose vials of mercury-free flu shots. So each year states are allowed to give the multi-dose mercury-containing flu shots to babies and pregnant women. So what's up with that? I just don't get how our policymakers will just come out and say, okay, okay, we know mercury is bad. We shouldn't have put it in flu shots. We're now taking it out of all shots. And again, that's because there are some vaccines internationally, not just flu shots, but some of the DTP shots and some of the tetanus shots that still have mercury. And they don't want to scare the world. And so they literally have to pretend that mercury is okay. And I wonder if they actually believe it. I, I doubt they do. I, I can't believe they would go that far. So why, why aren't they standing up for the health of children and doing things as safe as they possibly can? Okay, the old DTP vaccine, you know, the one that caused brain injury to all kinds of people. Unfortunately, they probably are going to try to bring that back in the United States. Um, they're already talking about it. I worry that they will. And, you know, what can I say? It's going to be bad news because that's going to cause a lot of unfortunate brain injuries. So I think the whole discussion on should we make vaccines mandatory for everybody? And I foresee that, you guys. I think eventually the way our pharma-funded state is going state meaning federal, and state governments. I predict, I don't know, in the next 20 years or so, we will see mandatory vaccines. And so part of my fight is to prevent that. And will we succeed? I don't know. I hope we do. But I, I don't know if we will, you guys. But we're going to go down trying. So what's interesting is these older doctors realize that if you're going to mandate something, you have to prove that it's going to be healthier for people. So you would have to prove that everyone who gets the full CDC vaccine schedule is healthy, both in the short term and the long term, than kids who don't get the full CDC schedule. They'd have to prove that. And doctors who classically have made policy based on science will understand that. But you know what? I'll tell you... I tell you, the younger generation of policymakers, to them, vaccines are so amazing and so wonderful and safe. And 
they are so certain the science shows that fully vaccinated kids are way healthier than unvaccinated or partially vaccinated kids. To them, that science exists. It has to be there. So it's already in their mind. They are all comfortable with making a policy like that. Everyone's comfortable with that. Yet the truth remains that we don't have any studies like that. And the short studies we do have side with the theory that unvaccinated children might be healthier in the long run. And we don't have any studies that prove that, but the studies that have looked at this to try to see who's healthier, they always side with the unvaccinated kids. And no one's uh, willing to do the full study. I honestly don't think we ever will see a full study. I hope we do, but I don't think we will. I mean, I guess I'm just being uh, truthful with that. So the fact that no such science exists and that no one studied it, and in fact, the CDC on their website has already made written statements saying it's unethical to do a prospective randomized controlled trial comparing vaccinated to unvaccinated children, and we won't do it, that goes to show you that no large organization is probably ever going to do such a study. So we need to keep pointing that out as best we can. And I love the discussion about mandates and how that's actually going to backfire and reduce vaccine acceptance. I really think it is. You know, something is amazing and good and healthy for you and it's optional, people tend to do it. If something is good and amazing for you, but it's mandatory, people start to ask why it needs to be mandatory and they'll start asking questions. So along that line of thinking, vaccine mandates might actually help promote vaccine injury awareness and make fewer people vaccinate. Who knows? It'll be interesting to see. But we'll fight these mandates regardless and try to keep this a free choice. And I will spend the rest of my life um, helping to promote the idea of informed consent and parental choice and raising kids in a natural, healthy way and having the freedom to do, to do so. Anyway, that's the end of this corner. Thanks for joining me, you guys. And I will see you on the next one, which is, oh, <laughs> it's me again in the next chapter. Interesting. Well, it's, uh, it's basically me having a discussion with a family in my office about mandatory vaccination laws and whether or not they should start vaccinating their kids so they can keep them in school or if they should forego the vaccines and homeschool. Anyway, be a fun discussion and I will see you guys then.